Thanks, and welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and for this episode of the Net Positive, I'm joined by Kitty Adams. She's the founder and chief executive officer of Adopt a Charger. Kitty, welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. It's just great to have you on the show. Well, it's really nice to meet you, Ted. Thank you for inviting me and um, look forward to talking about electric vehicles, charging infrastructure, sustainability, all those yeah, fun things. All those good things and specifically how, you, how you've been instrumental because uh, clearly you have been instrumental. I'll just sort of start off by saying I, I knew nothing about your organization, Adopt a Charger, until I saw this announcement of Rivian Motors. Yeah being a sponsor for a whole bunch of chargers in Yosemite. And I thought that just sounds so totally cool. So we'll, let's, we'll get to that, but I want to go all the way back. Um, back to the beginning. <laughs> back to the beginning. Born and raised where? I think Michigan. Right, I'm from Michigan originally. So I grew up in a suburb of Detroit. So I have a big soft spot in my heart for Motown and really excited about some of the projects I'm working on in Michigan. So, um, but actually Adopt a Charger is active in 11 different states. We have 400 EV charging stations that we've enabled already, over 400. So, you know, sometimes I like to lead with that because people think of Adopt a Charger as being focused on, you know, California, Yosemite, but actually we're, we're all over the place and middle America kind of needs adopt a charger, maybe a little bit more than Santa Monica, California right now. That's what I gathered from uh, doing a little bit of research is that you're really trying to get to those harder to reach or harder to reach. They haven't been reached yet. Well, yeah. And if I can, that kind of like back to the beginning, why I started adopt a charger is um, I'm a longtime EV driver. I've driven electric since 2002 And in 2009, when the American recovery and reinvestment money was being distributed, I saw a lot of charging stations being crowded in the commercial zones. And it's great that there's that charging station a half mile from my house at the drugstore, but I will never use it because I charge at home every night. So I wanted to look at it from the lens of where do EV drivers need opportunities to charge? And for me, it was the state parks, national parks, museums. Places where people are routinely traveling 40 or 50 miles to get there, they're going to stay for two or three hours. They have time to add a legitimate amount of range to their vehicle at a level two charging station. So, um, and also too, I know that in order to have the confidence to buy the cars, people need to see EV charging where they want to go. I can't even tell you how many times I've heard people saying, I need a charging at Yosemite. You know, I want to be able to drive my electric vehicle to Yosemite. So in order to enable that zero emission travel, we need to have charging stations at places like state parks, national parks. Well, let's go back to 2002. What were you driving? And is it a Nissan Leaf with like a hundred miles of range or 80 miles? It was, um, it was a Toyota RAV4 electric vehicle. I got that in 20. 22, I mean, 2002. And that's how I met everybody from Plug in America is we were basically all EV owners that wanted to keep the cars on the road and prove that this technology is, you know, uh, futuristic. And it, and so um, it was kind of a unique, I, I stumbled onto that car because I'm a tree hugger. I wanted to do the right thing for the environment, but it's really amazing how it dictated my career. I ended up you know, everything came from being an EV driver for me. 
So interesting. I, I when I first came to LA, I was the director of energy efficiency for LADWP. Nice. And part of my job was promoting EVs, and we had this fleet of GM. I think they called it the Impact originally. Which was, yeah. It was not a good name for a car. It sounds like a collision. But then <laughs> was, they called it the EV1. So, and that car was hot, but it, it well, I think it got maybe 80 miles of range. It, you know, there are lead yeah. acid batteries in there. They got 80 miles of range. And, and if you turn on the air conditioning or, or, or even the stereo, you know, you were, you were sunk. But, but your RAV4 probably got, what, about 100 miles or something like 100, that? 100. And if I drove it, you know, gingerly behind, you know, hanging out behind trucks and getting that regen, I could probably push out 120 on it. Um, and that car worked for me. What, what ended up the reason why I had to get rid of it is when I was moving into my rental built in the 1950s with a, didn't have adequate panel capacity. Um, I just didn't want to do all the upgrades that were necessary. And at that time, the the charger was not on board the car. So you couldn't just take that RAV and plug it into any 120 volt outlet like you can with the cars today. So it was just a little bit complicated. And I saw on the horizon, Tesla, the Chevy Volt, the Nissan Leaf. So I had the confidence to know that, you know, if I got, if I let that Toyota RAV4 go, there would be another car for me. So, and that car's still on the road. Somebody bought it up in Oregon and they're still driving it over a hundred thousand miles on that old nickel metal hydride battery. So. Yeah. yeah. I remember driving some of the RAV4s. They were kind of, you sort of swayed around a little bit. They were heavy. <laughs> the battery, the batteries were heavy. Well, well, so you go way back in the EV world. How did you get to California, by the way? What, 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 what brought um, you here? Well, actually this is a story. A lot of people in Michigan know. We, when I graduated from college, there was a little bit of a recession. You know, the American automotive industry was in a dip, and that affects all all of Michigan, the supply chain, everybody. So there just wasn't a lot of jobs at that time. And I came out to visit my friend who also graduated from Michigan State University, who was an engineer working for Hughes Aircraft. So I came out and I visited California and uh, got to experience some of the sunshine. <laughs> so I decided, oh, I think I'll, I'll spend some time in California. So that's how I came out here. And, you know, part of me thinks that I might end up in Michigan again. I really love it there. I, you know, I'm an outdoors person. So um, never say never. I might move back to Michigan at some point. Yeah, oh, that's great. That's great. I like to say I, I, I loved everywhere I've lived. I would go back to any one of them and, and I'm open to others too. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much a frame of mind, I'm, I'm sure. But I, I'm kind of getting a sense then that, that you and Paul Scott and others were these early EV drivers on the West side and, mm -hmm. and knew each other almost a club just by our affiliation, just because you all had these EVs. And then you're sitting around and, and you said, geez, I wish there were more chargers. Maybe one way we could get them is to have people Donate them, right? Adopt that's that's kind of how it worked because again, I did not see the business case for a middleman layer between the utility and the EV driver, you know, and a lot of the charging in the public space didn't make sense. It was too expensive. It's more expensive than the cost of gasoline. And we're not going to convert people to drive electric cars if it's going to be pricier than gas cars. You know, the upfront cost of a battery electric vehicle is higher than a internal combustion engine car. So where we really convince people is on that low cost of ownership. 
And most people do charge their car over 90%, I think still gets happens between midnight and 6am. But we need those chargers in the public space, not only to give people confidence to get the cars, but more importantly, for somebody that's curious about EVs to engage in conversation with an actual owner. So when they go to the Muir Woods, and they can talk to somebody like Paul Scott about how do you like your car? Guess what? I'm winning. There's a real disconnect when it comes to selling EVs at the dealer level. So it's, you know, the EV driving community has proven to be a very important and successful advocate for electrified transportation. So that's part of why I do it. What was the first one that got you going? I mean, you you kind of had this idea. You thought, oh gosh, I mean, can I tell you like hitting a home run on my very first install? It was Chrissy Field by the Golden Gate Bridge, which is part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area. So it's a really high profile location. The bridge is in the background. There's, you know, it's San Francisco, some of the highest concentration of electric vehicles. And back in 2013, when we did our ribbon cutting, the then director of the national parks, John Jarvis came to cut the ribbon. And it's like Obama coming to your city council meeting. It was just like the biggest thing, you know? And I thought, Oh, this is the money for that one. Who who adopted Uh, for that one? It was like an ideal situation where the sponsor was the national park conservation association. So we were able to help another nonprofit that's supporting the work in the parks. And um, that that most just recently got updated through the Rivian sponsorship. So now there's the Rivian waypoints charging station there. And in addition to donating the equipment, Rivian is generously given us 10 years of operation and maintenance for the EV charging stations, which is very important because my biggest pet peeve is coming upon broken charging stations. And right now there's a, I've heard that there's as many as 30% of all EV chargers are non-operational. Oh man, that bugs me because it gives people that are curious about EVs the wrong message. And they feel like EVs aren't ready for prime time because these chargers are broken. So um, I was really grateful that Rivian has aligned with me philosophically that they want to provide a reliable service that's focused on the user experience. So, you know, they want to make sure the EV drivers are getting what they came for. Whereas other people, you know, I'll be honest, they'll just cash that grant check and then they could care less what happens. So um, the fact that there's accountability uh, really, really made me that much more appreciative of the Rivian opportunity. Yeah, that's really great. That's great. Now you're, um, I was thinking about it. Like if I wanted to uh, donate a charger, let's just say hypothetically, or somebody, some listener, um, it seems to me there's several components and you correct me, about, but but you have to hook it up. You, you have, somehow you have to go from, Wherever there's electrical service, you have to trench in and put a conduit in and stub it out where the charger is going to go. And then you have to put a base for the charger and you have to buy the charger. Mm-hmm. Now, we've, now we've got the electrical infrastructure and the charger. And then, like you said, Rivian's going to pay for electricity for the next 10 years. Well, actually, Rivian's providing the operation and maintenance. And we're at Chrissy Field right now. We're covering the cost of electricity by selling the low carbon fuel credits that are generated by the charging stations. So if we're offsetting the use of gasoline, these charging stations are generating credits, which can be sold through the, um, through CARB's cap and trade program. So we're able to offset the cost of electricity there. Other locations I've gotten um, sponsorship for the electricity. And 
you know, as much as I want, I love talking about the high profile locations like national park properties in the Getty. Some of the projects I'm most proud of are the ones where the EV driving community came together to offer up sponsorship to memorialize somebody, um, you know, Doug Kortoff, William Kortoff, who helped me start Adopt a Charger is another uh, person that I love to honor by installing EV chargers in remote locations. So really what we're proving is that it is something that every individual can feel empowered to make a difference and be the solution. There's a few EV drivers that have that are offering level two EV charging in the public right of way by installing a charger on the curb. You know, it's connected to their residential panel. They're giving the electricity away to people that need to use it. But more importantly, they're enabling somebody that maybe lives in an apartment or doesn't have access to charging to consider an electric vehicle by by offering that. So, yeah, we can all be part of the solution. And so not not to hammer on it too much because it's not really about the money. You're, you're running a much, you have a much broader vision and you're enacting a much broader strategy, but it, what, what is the cost then of a charger? If somebody were well, one, would that be like 10 grand for the, a unit or? I wish. Um, there's so many variables in it that it's hard to say, you know, what the yeah. average cost is. But what I can tell you is I worked with the California state parks to do an estimate for installing four EV charging stations at a California state park in 2018. And what we came up with was $85,000. So that's kind of my benchmark average for a park setting, like a state park is 85,000. It can be cheaper when you're working in a newer parking structure in Santa Monica, where you're running conduit along the wall. And I've been just rolling in Arkansas because everybody is so hungry for EV charging that businesses are willing to um, contribute to the the cost of hosting a charging station. Evolve Kentucky's had amazing success in Indiana and Kentucky, getting people to, you know, I'll donate some chargers to them. And somehow they go out there and dig the trench themselves and, and uh, actually enable the install. So we've been really lean and mean as far as getting some some inexpensive, reliable charging stations installed. Let's talk about the Getty. You're very proud of the Getty case study. Um, it sounds like the Getty's just been all in. You started small and you get, just had to keep yeah. on adding. Thank you for bringing that up. I am really proud of the work I've done with Getty, the Getty because they're a world-class institution. And when I first reached out to them back in 2013, they said nothing made sense before you walked in the door <laughs> because for EV charging, you pay so much in fees. You know, At that time, we installed 24 charging stations at the Getty. I installed them in every other parking spot and upsized the transformer because I knew 24 was not going to cut it. A year later, we increased to 40, and we just recently increased to 120 level two charging stations and three DC fast chargers, which serve the all electrical security fleet, their electric shuttle bus. And then they also have charging capacity for electric school buses that come in on field trips. I can tell you that the the traditional model of that EVSP where they're requiring a payment of $500 to $600 per parking spot for networking and payment authentication, that is not scalable. There's absolutely no way the Getty would be paying, you know, $500,000 a year in fees to these 
service providers. So let's, you know, let's let's unpack that a little bit because you're you're right into it, and I get you. But the, these EV electric vehicle SP service providers yes. are companies like ChargePoint and EVGo and Electrify America that are in the business of putting in chargers and then charging money for their kilowatt yeah. hours. And there's a few different business models, actually. Um, you know, Adopted Chargers, the nonprofit proven successful model. And then there's the um, owner-operated model. You mentioned EVGo and Electrify America, where they own the charging stations and they offer it like a concession. They're mainly focused on depot charging, you know, DC fast charger depots along freeways and in front of Walmart and things like that. And then there's the um, model where they, the company is just selling the charging station and then licensing the software to operate the charging stations. That would be like a charge point or EV connect. So there, they don't have a vested interest in that charger being even operational. If something goes wrong, then they reach out to the site host to pay to fix it. Whereas EV go and electrify America own it and they're controlling the asset. Then the last um, business model, which is proven to be, in my opinion, the most successful is the vertically integrated model like Tesla, where it's, I mean, the, the chargers are there to help sell the cars. So instead of, you know, paying for commercials and marketing, Tesla invested all that money in building out the supercharger network. And I have to say that that's been a big factor in why people, um, feel confident buying a Tesla because currently, you know, you can easily drive across the country in a Tesla, whereas in, they're still building out the other standards for fast charging. So now the Getty, did you raise, uh, did, did people donate to have okay. charging there? Or? Well, I'm going to go back to your days at LADWP because I have a great relationship with LADWP, Marvin Moon and, and Scott Briasco were the origins. I met Mayor Garcetti. He was super helpful, his whole team and making that happen. But I started using by using grants from LADWP and the South Coast Air Quality Management District to get that original footprint. And then when it was time to expand, I know I needed something unique. And so I was able to bring in PowerFlex, a division of EDF Renewables, as the sponsor for the Getty. And what they offered was an adaptive load management system. So that way we could maximize the potential of the existing capacity. What they have is um, like a smart controller that talks to each and every parking spot. So if you come in and you're an employee of the Getty, you're going to be parked there eight hours, you might just be getting 16 amps of power. But if I come in, a salesperson, I need to get 40 miles range in two hours, it will give me the maximum 32 amps. So there, you know, it's nice that we have that sophisticated adaptive load management so we can take advantage of when renewable generation comes on, you know, time of use pricing. We can also... Um, stagger the charging so that we can have a flat load profile, which is pretty important. Let's, let's talk about the, let's go, let's go back to Yosemite because okay. when you started out, you were, you were, you were operating a vehicle that got about hundred miles. You said maybe 120, if you really nursed it along, but now we have vehicles that are going, you know, I have a little Chevy, my second Chevy Bolt, I'm getting what, 238 or whatever it nice. is miles of the gallon. So um, I guess now you're just, you're, you're, your sites are further. You, you, it's no longer Leo Carrillo. It's now Yosemite. Where you want to have, 
(laughs) my personal portfolio of charging stations that I want to use. Yeah, I've had three trips to Yosemite this year, and I'm actually going next month for for a four day weekend. So I'm glad I'm glad selfishly those chargers are there because I you I need it even with a Tesla. I need to have charging in the valley in order to enable my my trip there. But really, I'm I'm most I go back to, you know, the chargers that really make me happy are the ones I'll never use. <laughs> the ones that are in, you know, at Drake's Ridge Rustic Nudist Retreat in Indiana. I am so happy that there's chargers there. All of these charging stations that I'm putting in in Arkansas, I don't know that I'll ever be able to use them. Hopefully I'll get out to Arkansas this summer on a road trip. But I know that those chargers being there are going to be super, super um, beneficial to helping accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles, especially in a place like Arkansas, where there's no state rebate, you can't buy a Tesla in the state, you know, so it's really up to the EV driving community to build the demand for the vehicles in places like Arkansas, Kentucky, Indiana, Tennessee, even Michigan, you know, Um, it's great that everybody's all in, Ford F-150 Lightning is coming, in case you didn't hear. That's a game changer. GM is, is, that, is really committed to electrification, but it's still up to the EV driving community to prime the pump and get people to understand all the advantages to driving an EV. You know, if you go to the dealer, you know, it's better if we can send that person to the dealer, uber educated about the new technology so that they don't get talked out of it or, you know, decide not to because they're not getting the answers from the, the car dealer that they anticipate. You're, you're helping extend the range. And then I also heard this term recently, the driveway less masses, the driveway less. Yeah, you know, the right? multi-unit dwelling. Thanks Beautiful. for bringing it up because, you know, I, I got to say that interestingly enough, people always depend on me to solve all these difficult problems about rural charging, uh, communities of concern, places like multi-unit dwelling, because some of those expensive um, service providers don't make sense. You know, there's no business case to begin with, but the last thing we want is to go into a disadvantaged community and expect people, low-income consumers to pay twice as much for charging in the public space because they don't have access to low cost power at night, like the people in single family homes. So um, my big push there is to bring down the cost per parking space. Anyone listening to this, if you're trying to sell an MUD, let me tell you why it's been so hard for the past 10 years, because those are business people that are super savvy and they look at spreadsheets and they're able to determine how that's going to benefit their business. So when you come in and you're trying to sell them on a solution that's $3,000 per parking space, regardless of anyone uses it or not, that's just not going to work. You know, what they need is what everybody needs, access to low cost power where they can charge their cars overnight while they're sleeping. So I am focusing my attention on trying to figure out some of these challenging um, use cases like multi-unit dwellings and rural and disadvantaged communities. And then is, is part of your vision that, that utilities would be the providers? Well, um, amen to that, right? Every, 
Well, actually, it's been interesting, and you probably know more about this, but up until now, the utilities have really been restricted by the different public utility commissions on how involved they can be in owning and operating EV charging stations. We've seen some pilot programs, but even then, these pilots don't make sense. I'm, Southern California Edison is absolutely a leader in this space, but their charge ready program because the way it went through the PUC, you're required to buy from a restricted list of vendors, all of whom are way too expensive and people end up spending three to 10 times in the cost of networking that they would pay and just giving the electricity away. The other thing is back to the reliability. You know, I know that when the power goes out, my utility provider is going to have it back on. They're going to be communicating with me. I'm going to be able to call the 800 number and find out what's going on. So I think that they bring a level of um, reliability that we maybe don't see from the service providers. And also the, the markup on that cost per kilowatt hour. You know, um, that's what's we're, when you see EV charging, that's 45 cents per kilowatt hour. Who's going to use that, you know, especially when people can get it for 10 or 11 cents at home. So, yeah, we, we really have a lot to work out. And I think that, you know, by the utilities being able to expand their footprint in this space, we'll start to see um, some public charging that makes more sense. And I will point to LADWP because they've been really successful at distributing their money and spending it effectively to get a lot of charging stations in Los Angeles. And I'm feeling like the, you know, the current utilities, you know, having to be at an arm's length at this is, is only adding to the cost and adding to the, to the burden of the EV driver who's dependent upon charging in the public space. I think I heard you talk about, uh, you know, sort of EV charging as almost a network or uh, uh, almost an ecosystem of chargers. We have our own, our own chargers at our homes. We have them at our businesses or churches. Or yes, there are chargers when you go shopping. Yes, there are now chargers. You know, when you go to these destination spots like yeah. parks and different and, and different spots, and we have a highway charging or fast supercharging along the, yeah. the highways. There's all these different. Uh, all these different models, but I, I really commend you for being, you know, being on this uh, such a such a cutting edge of, of looking at the, the equity dimension in all of this. Yes, thank you. The transformational dimension in all of this, and and seeing how you're 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 working these harder to reach or or left out kind of communities. And you said ten states. Your reaches to ten states. And how many chargers now do you think you can? Um, account for what's the number it's definitely over 400 um you know i i have i i did these big increases at at the getty center we increased to 120 at the natural history museum we increased to 40 at the la county museum of art we increased to 40 so you know even right there i'm i'm almost at at, at 200 or 300 and then um Evolve Kentucky has 40 locations where they have two charging stations. So that's another 80. So I haven't sat down and like really yeah. looked at how many, but it's over 400. And my goal is in the next year to double that. So my goal in the next 18 months is to install another 400 charging stations. I'm really at that point where I'm going to double the inventory. And something you said I'd like to um, comment about and that was the ecosystem. I do look at EV charging as an ecosystem. So there's a 
it's always finding the right level of charging for that use case. Uh, Adopted Charger deals mainly with long dwell time level two charging at destinations. And then there is the need for the DC fast charging because we have to get to Yosemite. It's great that you can charge when you get there, but it's 400 miles from my house. So I am going to have to use DC fast charging to get there. There's residential charging and how all of those fit together because the big picture, and I know you know this because you you have a lot of contacts with utilities and um, sustainability and renewable energy generation. Ultimately, the business case for these huge batteries on wheels is that they can be storage, a storage mechanism for over-generation of renewables. So if we can incentivize that right behavior, get people to plug in during the day between two o'clock and four o'clock or one o'clock, whenever the solars kick in and we want to put that power into the batteries, we can do that. And then even maybe more important is at night because the wind generation that comes on the grid between midnight and 6 a.m., there's not a whole lot going on at that time to push the battery, to push power out. So instead of selling, you know, paying um, Arizona to take our over generation of renewables, we can use the cars to capture the energy at the right times of day. And also too, when vehicle to grid becomes a reality, maybe as soon as 2025, I mean, there's so much effort to make this happen. We'll be able to draw power from the batteries. So you know how the Ford F-150 is powering that person's house in a power outage? Kind of the same principle where we'll be able to take a little bit of power from all these stationary, you know, the batteries that are parked in the driveway. And then that way, maybe we, we can avoid having to bring a peaker plant online because typically it's, it's not a long time that we need to um, get excess power to the grid. So really the, the most exciting thing for me is to see where we're at in 2025, where we really have legitimate vehicle to grid technology. Very excited about it. Very well articulated. And, and this whole notion of an ecosystem, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing. You, you and I grew up with cars, you know, that were internal combustion engines or belching all sorts of pollutants. The, the thought that they would be part of an ecosystem is uh, it's quite something, the end of ice. But I uh, just wanted to wrap up with how do you, how do you I always ask this, how do, how do you maintain balance in your life? You're, you're obviously, you're driven with this work activity going on? What is it that keeps you centered and grounded? I'm mission driven. That's exactly it. You know, I am not an EV charger salesman. I'm out here trying to save the world, literally, and offer up solutions to some of these problems. And I'm, I'm really of the mindset that, you know, we can't rely on Silicon Valley to come up with sophisticated technology to you know, to address climate change. These are glorified electrical outlets. What we need to do is get people to buy the cars so we can stop burning the oil. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really looking at it is I'm not trying to make money or create a business in this space. What I'm trying to do is address the needs so that we can get in EVs as quick as possible. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for what you're doing. Thank you so much for uh, giving me a voice and introducing me to your audience. I really appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. All right. Will do. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.